Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. And I'll just, like, stare at it for, like, 30 seconds being like, whose name is this? Before I realize it's my just name. what a not big deal thing it has been. Keep our children safe. Being an adult and making my decisions and eating candy for breakfast every morning. <laughs> On a weekday in March last year, three very special guests arrived at our studio. They came equipped with soda and snacks, essential fuel for a group of young friends. These boys were typical in a lot of ways. They talked eagerly about baseball and magic tricks, and I can confirm, candy. Two were nine, the other was 11 years old. They each live with their families in St. Louis County. They're all close friends, we didn't use their names for our conversations. Their parents were concerned for good reason about their future in Missouri. That's because all three kids are transgender boys. We'll hear from those parents later in the hour. But first, let's focus on the kids. Being trans, being boys, it isn't new for them. It's been years. Their classmates call them by their chosen names. They play on sports teams with other boys too. There's been a lot in the news about gender-affirming care in the last year, and now, too. What's less covered? What such care consists of? And for young people like the boys you'll hear from now, gender-affirming care actually begins way before puberty, long before things like surgery or hormones are even on the table. This care happens where youth spend most of their time, at home with their families, at school, and in community with their friends. It also comes from within the kids themselves, from their choices and how they make their voices heard and known. So we wanted to let you hear their stories in their own voices. To begin, I asked them to tell us about when they realized or started to realize, I am a boy. I remember that I was at my grandparents' house and my, uh, my, great-grandma's birthday, and I was pulling a whole fit over that I had to wear a dress. Oh, okay. So that was not what you wanted to wear. No, I wanted to wear one of my brother's button-downs. Uh-huh. And who won that particular battle? Did you get to wear the button-down, or did you have to wear the dress? I did not win. When did you start thinking, I'm, I'm a boy? So my coming out was very spontaneous. Um... Almost as soon as I had the thought, I vocalized it, and my parents let me figure it out. But I do remember, I think like about a couple days to a week before I had come out, um, my sister wanted desperately for me and her to play like princesses or something like that. And I remember taking, um, I think it was like a cape or something, and insisting that I wanted to be the prince this time. Um. So I used the term coming out. That's a term that a lot of people do use. Does that suit you? Like, does that fit with what you feel like you have done or, or what you are doing? Well, I like to call it like embracing yourself like that because mm -hmm. it's, well, that's what I tell my friends 
because um, my, I feel like my friends are in a safe, are a safe place for me to be with, so I like to tell them everything I know that is not a secret. Mm-hmm. That's great. And when it came to telling uh, people other than your family, was that scary in any way? Is it something that you felt pretty ready to do? Um, yeah, I was always a very like vocal kid. I still am, um, but especially when I was younger, I would just like talk about literally everything that ever happened to me. Um, I I vaguely remember that earlier in the school year, one of my friends had started going by their middle name simply because they thought it was cooler. So there was already like an opening for me to go by a new name. At at some point, it was just like summer, and I came back with a new haircut and a new set of clothes, and I was just like a different person, and no one questioned it. Was it like that for you too, when you talked with your your friends, or when you were kind of going back to school after vacation? Um, when I went back to school, my friends were very supportive of me, and. Now, in earlier, it, it hasn't really been such a big deal, and uh, I'm really happy about that, and they have been so supportive. It wasn't, in my case, like grown-ups not taking it as well, but it was just like trying to explain something like this to a grown-up took a little bit more thinking. You had to like put yourself in their shoes and be like, this is the best way to explain this, whereas kids were just like, whatever. <laughs> like, they, they take most things, especially since I came out younger. Like, you're constantly taking in information, um, and you get new information, and you just take it in. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a lot easier. Yeah. Since you've begun introducing yourself as boys with your new names, what are one or two things maybe that have changed? And it can be changes that you feel yourself or things that you see in other people. Yeah, I definitely found myself hanging out warm with, like, the boys and doing more stereotypically boy things at recess, uh, like sports and whatnot. Um, And my friends definitely, like, everyone in my class definitely treated me slightly differently. Um, Not because of, like, anything that had happened, not like they had treated me bad or now they're treating me bad, but there's just, like, a different... A different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And different is not always a bad thing. Yeah. Now, when you came out as trans, did that change the sports you could play in or the teams you could join? All of the teams and sports teams in my school were co-ed until third grade. And so since I came out in first grade, that never really was a problem for me. But there was definitely that kind of like feel at recess and whatnot not exactly like a unspoken rule and not exactly like people wouldn't let you play but i think more of the thing that happened to me was all of the friends that i had made who are like sort of like taking me into their groups and whatnot now that i had come out and went all all played sports during recess so they were just like come play basketball with us come play soccer with us so that definitely opened up a lot for me like when I was a girl in like half of kindergarten, I it was like I wasn't playing a lot of sports because 
I didn't really get invited to a lot of sports, oh. but now since I've transitioned, a lot of people want to play sports with me, and I have these two best I have two best friends that love sports, and I play with them like every day. Now, have there been any any times when you've been worried that um, that adults would not believe you when you gave them yeah your name? told them anything about your situation? This was less of a, a problem for me because um, my parents did a lot of like introducing me with my new name and new pronouns. Um, after I had had like my haircut and my wardrobe changed, I wouldn't come out to anyone who I just, like was worried about coming out to until I like had a really good vibe of them. Um, it was like uh, a little bit more difficult and stressful and whatnot to come out to, like, everyone else, like my neighbors or um, the relatives I don't see a lot because I'm just, like, not sure I'm going to take it. I wasn't really, like, worried exactly, but I was, like, a little bit nervous that they were going to take that information and just, like, not do anything with it. Like, they would take my new name and they would take my new pronouns, but, like, not the way my friends had. They would, like, the way, like, my friends would, like, now invite me to do, like, stereotypically boy things with them and, like, shift their friends group around to, like, make room for me. I feel I was, like, worried that certain grown-ups just would, like, take my new name and pronouns and, like, just, like, treat me the exact same way, like mm. a girl, I guess. So, like, they would acknowledge it but not accept it? Not exactly. Like, they would accept my pronouns and my new name but, like, not change anything else about the way they treated me. That was, like, my biggest concern, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I've one with kids. So when I changed my name and when I went back to school, my parents forgot to, on like the school list, forgot to put my name as, like they forgot to change it. So I went to school as like on the list as my old name. Sure. And I didn't think kids would believe me. What did your teacher say when you told them what your name was? What it changed to, that is. I just told them my name, and they were fine with it. Okay, and that's good to really hear. Supportive. Yeah. I think the thing that bruised me the most when I came back to school, well, it started it, actually this year in fourth grade. They started, um, they started getting making the um, growth and development lessons definitely more, more. Um, important than they were the last, like, d- a different year. The previous years. Yes, mm-hmm. and I, th- um, and I was like really uncomfortable, I guess, in those moments because they don't really at my school they don't really do um, different genders. They do boy and girl genders. They don't really do what I do. Do you all feel happier now that you're boys? Yes, yes. very much. Okay. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Like, it's so weird to call myself by my old name if I have to sometimes. And when I hear my new name, I was like, was that ever actually my name? I, I sometimes look back at my old name and I'm like, yeah, there's, there's absolutely no way that was my name. Uh, Especially since, like, how many years it's been since I actually went by that name. 
and like no one no one calls me by that um sometimes i'll i'll like see it on like old passports or something like that and i'll just like stare at it for like 30 seconds being like whose name is this before i realize <laughs> it's my name we're talking with three trans boys two nine-year-olds and an 11-year-old about their lives and growing up in Missouri. In a lot of ways, their lives are entirely normal, but that's not how many Missouri lawmakers see them. Between bills focused on school sports and bills that seek to ban and even criminalize gender-affirming health care, the ordinary, day-to-day existence of trans young people sits squarely in the target of dozens of proposed laws. These boys may be young, but they do understand. They listen. And for years, their families have been making the journey to Jefferson City to testify against those sorts of bills and to try to convince lawmakers to see them and their families as people, as human beings, rather than political targets. Let's return to our conversation. The next voice you'll hear is the 11-year-old describing what it's like to stand up in front of a House committee and tell the adults, with no uncertainty, that they're wrong. I've always been very outspoken. It's sort of um, it. It's sort of the same kind of feeling I assume for people who have like trouble giving class presentations, which is never me. But um, it hurt is the wrong word. It just feels wrong to know that the government is taking these bills that people are proposing, like the bill sponsors don't even know what the bill is about. They're like, this bill will save women's sports and then give no explanation how, no explanation why. And they'll like misdirect the conversation and they'll try to like pretend that they know, they don't know what these bills are. And it's just like, it's a it's slightly annoying feeling to know that like there are lots and lots and lots of people here telling you that this bill is wrong and yet you file it years and years and years over and over, over, and over again. Mm-hmm. With your parents, do you talk about these things that lawmakers want to pass? Um, I am not allowed to protest because my dad and mom don't want me hearing all this terrible stuff. But I go to Jefferson City and talk to senators to try to change their mind about all these bad bills. But also, I have heard some really bad things. The first time I went, there was this senator that said, like, I think girls, trans girls should play on boys' teams and trans boys should play on girls' teams. And I really hate that they are doing that. And it, like, just makes me so angry. And when I was younger, like in second grade, I did not understand any of this stuff. Um, I don't think they know anything about what it's like to be trans. If you're... If you are going to, let's say, if you're going to pass a bill or say yes or something, then actually think about what you're doing. What is it going to be like if you were trans or that person, and how is it going to harm them? Because I don't think, like, anyone who does that even thinks about us, the whole LGBTQ community, for a second. They're just... They don't understand, and they don't know how much it is hurting us. I have just one more question here. So we're talking about 
what you've experienced in the past and how things are now. Can each of you tell me what you're looking forward to in the future? When I think of the future, I think of being an adult and making my own decisions and eating candy for breakfast every morning. <laughs> but I also think of, like, if I work super hard, then I'll be, I could be, like, whatever I want. I'm looking forward to some point where the Missouri legislature realizes that this is hurting people. Um, there's always going to be hate for different minorities, um, any minority, anywhere. There's there's always going to be something. Um, I've learned that the hard way. Um, but if the the majority of anyone there is um is willing to stand up then you can make a, a real difference and i'm i'm looking forward to the point where missouri legislature realizes exactly what these bills will do because i'm pretty sure it'll shock them i'm glad to hear that there are places where you are getting support and that you are continuing to support each other thank you so much for joining our show today and for talking with us about things that are, um, that are really personal um, and very touching. Thank you. Thank you. Those were three transgender boys, ages 11, 9, and 9, talking about their lives and coming out. I spoke with them in March last year. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue this conversation when we return. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. We're listening back to a conversation about the Missouri legislature's efforts to restrict the lives of trans people. Before the break, we heard an interview I conducted with three trans boys reflecting on their lives and hopes and worries. I sat down with them in March of last year, a time when the Missouri legislature was considering dozens of bills related to trans people. Some of those bills are now law, like a ban on gender-affirming care for minors. Another bill targeted trans student-athletes, banning them from competing on teams that reflect their gender identity. That was 2023. This month, the Missouri legislature commenced its 2024 session. And once again, lawmakers have filed dozens of bills about trans people. Now, it's true that legislation is about people, but it's impossible to ignore just how personal these bills are. That ban targeting trans athletes that became law last year, that kept just 10 students off specific teams. Its toll on those student-athletes is another matter. This year, bills that restrict bathroom access, medical care, and more have picked up where lawmakers left off in 2023. But there's opposition to this reach into the lives of trans people. For just as long as the Missouri legislature has been working to enact restrictions, trans people and their families have been going to Jefferson City to face those lawmakers. 
During a hearing last week, one father of a 10-year-old trans child asked lawmakers to leave his family alone. My kid trying to go to the bathroom in school with dignity is not the issue, but it is bills like this that will drive my family from this state. I mean it, I am desperately fighting to stay. My parents are here. I want my kids to raise another generation in this home that my grandpa built. And I feel like I'm drowning because it happens again and again and again that we have to come here and fight for just the basic dignity of our kids. And so I'm begging you. I, I really, I don't know how else to say it or, or what the magic words are. I am begging you just to leave, leave us alone. That was Rabbi Daniel Bogard testifying at the Missouri legislature last week. In March last year, I sat down with Bogard and two other parents of trans kids to talk about what it's like to defend their children in the halls of power. Along with Bogard, I was joined by Maharat Rory Pickernese and Hannah, a mom to a then nine-year-old boy who asked that we only use her first name. I started the discussion with a question for Daniel Bogard. I asked him to describe how his son had come out to him. Yeah, by the time my son looked at us and said that he was a boy, it was like a slow-moving train that had been coming down the track for a long time. Uh, So the biggest fights that we had uh, that I remember, I think they're still the biggest fights, were when he would need to dress up in a dress for a formal occasion at the thing you talked about was his great-grandma's 90th birthday. But the truth of it is, there were so many moments. Uh, when he was four or five, one night while I was putting him to bed, he asked me if God could make him over again in a boy's body. Uh, at almost every age, he was choosing boys' clothes and boys' toys and wanting to play with friends who were boys. Uh, so, you know, he, he started asking and begging us for a boy's haircut, a short boy's haircut, and we processed our own transphobia. First, we cut his hair to his shoulders and then to his chin and then finally gave him that short boy's haircut. In the moment we did, he looked at us and he said, I'm a boy, and that was it. That was it. Does that resonate in any way with you, Hannah, or with you, Rory? Yeah. Um, my son was six when he told me and his dad that uh, he's a boy. And um, before a couple years leading up to him telling us, uh, he just went really quiet. He went from being really engaged and playful and happy to being really withdrawn, looking exhausted all the time. Um, I was sure he had some sort of illness that was causing him to be um so lethargic and tired all the time. And once he told us that he's a boy, he was bouncing off the walls, uh, couldn't wait to put on boy clothes and get his hair cut. And he had a name picked out already. Um, And it was, yeah, just instantaneous uh, excitement. And he just like reemerged. He was really ready then. Yes. Yeah. Rory, how about with you? Our story is actually a very different story. We did not have any clue at all that this was something that was going to be coming. My son was seven years old. He was in first grade. He had incredibly long hair, was going through a phase where he would only wear dresses, was doing ballet, very stereotypical girl things. 
until we got an email one day from his teacher that he had made an announcement in the middle of the class to say that he had a new name and that he wanted to be treated like a boy. And we had a lot of conversations with him about what he meant by that and what was different about that. And it was still a slow process for us in that he didn't right away change all of his clothing. He didn't change his pronouns right away. And and that was towards the end of first grade. And by the time we got to the end of the summer, we had gone through the same thing of first the shorter haircut to the shoulders um, and then the fully short haircut. And then he was exclusively shopping on the boys' side of the store and just lighting up when he could put on a suit and a little fedora. And by the time he started second grade, there was no looking back. So there are a lot of areas where parents typically don't let their kids make decisions for themselves. And this thing with clothing, right, and hair, this this comes up pretty frequently. And things like, you know, what's for dinner, when to go to bed, these things we can think of as being minor. Was there something about gender identity or the way that they were expressing themselves that made that different than those other kinds of decisions that kids might want to make on their own? It's a hard question to fully unpack because you're watching your child discover the world for the first time and everything is new to them and and everything is an exploration. What I think became really clear to us very quickly, though, was how much gender expression was really a reflection of something much more profound. There there was something about um, clothing, about how they, as kids, how our children see themselves reflected for themselves that becomes a matter of their very identity. Yeah, I mean, I also, like, from the very beginning with my son, thought whether this is a phase or the beginning of a really big transition, uh, I want all of my kids to always look back on this time and know that no matter what, their parents stand behind them. So phase or not, uh, we're here for you while you, you know, explore yourself and the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, I was just going to say, you know, I think a really important thing to understand about this is just what a not big deal thing it has been for my child and for so many kids to transition. Uh, I think a lot of folks who don't have a trans young person in their life imagine that this is huge and disastrous and comes with all of these reverberations. And the reality is this has been so easy. Being trans is one of the least interesting things about my kid. And... So I think it's it's hard for people who haven't experienced this or see this to to imagine it, but it just has not been a big deal. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you also experienced um, with your son's school and the community that you are part of? For the most part, yes. Yeah, the school has been really supportive. Um, his teacher walked you know put us in contact with people at the district level to get his name changed on all of his paperwork um most of the kids at school haven't thought twice about it 
Um, most family has been supportive. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's really not been a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Is that also the experience that Rory, your son, has had? Pretty much. I find with kids especially, there's so many things in the world that change rapidly around them. The idea that somebody has a new name or a new gender felt almost like we were telling them that somebody had a new hair color. It was mildly interesting, but they really wanted to go back to the show they were watching. Um, When we made the announcement through the class list, as I said, my son started second grade with a new name and new pronouns, we heard from a lot of parents who started sharing some of their own stories. Turns out that we thought my sister was my brother growing up, or I have a nephew, or any number of stories that people shared that helped us to realize that this was a lot more common in people's experience than we might have realized. And for the most part, it really doesn't impact anybody else. And so everyone was really happy to just practice a new name, to get used to pronouns, and then to embrace our kid as the funny, spunky, active kid that he always was. The nods around the table. So your, your kids are teaching you. Mm-hmm. Can you share one really concrete example of how your son taught you about what it means to be trans? The biggest piece that I've learned is that my son didn't change at all the day after he transitioned. He just had a new haircut and new words to describe himself. But he was very much the same kid the day before and the day after uh, he transitioned. I think um, my son had gone so inward and the like immediate reemergence, I guess, um, was what was has been even still what's the most striking for me since he came out to us um, then versus now. Um, and we're getting to know we've been getting to know him for the first time since he came out because he had no interest. He was not engaged at all before um, coming out. And that is certainly not the child I met. No. Last week. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking with three local parents of trans kids and what it's like to come out and grow up trans. We're speaking with Rory Pickernese. Her son is 11. Daniel Bogard, father to a nine-year-old boy. And Hannah, mom to a nine-year-old boy. Now, all three of your kids are doing what's known as social transition, which involves changing their names, wearing boy clothes, and doing so very happily, um, and otherwise living as boys. But there are next steps with puberty not far off and things like hormones or puberty blockers. What has to happen for each of you as families before those options are even on the table? There's a rigorous process that we would choose, I think is is mandated, but I would say would be the path that our family would choose regardless of meeting with competent professionals to understand that path and to make sure that my child understands exactly what's involved in that process and that everyone feels like 
whatever the next steps are that we choose are the next steps that are the best for his care. And so when I say that, I'm including in that a therapist that he has been meeting with regularly since he first decided to make the transition. Therapists that his father and I meet with regularly even before he decided to make the transition. Um, His pediatrician has been in this conversation with us from the very beginning. Um, Nurses and nurse practitioners, endocrinologists, there are a number of people who are involved in helping us to determine what healthcare should look like for my child, similar to any other child who has maybe a smaller team of people, but a team of people who are surrounding them, in addition to my my husband, his parents, um, and I, my child's parents, um, and him, who is also very much involved in this conversation with us. What are some of the discussions that you've had with your son so far about this? So my son has started to ask questions about what happens to his body if what he's heard about in puberty for other people is going to be the same. Um, What does it look like if he chooses to go on testosterone? What happens if he doesn't go on testosterone? What happens if he doesn't go on puberty blockers? So he's already started to really ask a lot of those questions. And those are some of the conversations that he's been having with us. But what's also become really clear in those conversations is his own comfort level with what he thinks his body should look like and should not look like. And so whereas at the beginning I might have said, like like Hannah said, is this just a phase? Does he understand what it is? The more he starts to say things like, I don't want to grow breasts. Can we stop this? What does what does that mean for me? Right? The more that we're able to kind of see, okay, now this has been a few years and we can actually talk about specifics of body changes to then have him have the language to engage with medical professionals to say, what are the choices before us? Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> Daniel and Hannah, your boys are younger than Rory's is. What kinds of conversations have you all had, if any, regarding um, gender-affirming care as your boys are growing older? Um, well, my son has an older sister, And so we are talking a lot about puberty, and he's very clear and asks consistently, but that's not going to happen to me, right? The things that we're talking about that will happen to his older sister. And so we talk about the um, different options and all along the way that there are choices that we can make at different points in time that will sort of take us down different roads. And... um, He's very clear that he wants to grow a beard and have a deep voice um, and, you know, very, like, stereotypically male characteristics. You know, I'm struck in this conversation how hard it is for me to imagine these conversations absent government interference here in Missouri, that the way that our government is at war with our families and our kids is omnipresent and is in these doctor's offices and is always in these conversations. So I'm thinking about my son who has expressed repeatedly that he doesn't want to grow breasts. Uh, But 
when he expresses it, he al- almost always says, Daddy, are Missouri Republicans going to make me grow breasts? Are they going to make me do this? Hannah, I want to ask you about the gender clinic at Washington University because that has been the subject of a lot of controversy and discussion. And that clinic has come under fire from Missouri lawmakers, right, and a former employee. They accuse the clinic of pushing kids into being trans. Does that claim reflect any of what you have experienced there? And what is your reaction to such allegations? Uh, I mean, we have had one visit, and everything that um, has all of the allegations against the center, I have my own personal experience with how that was not accurate at all. Um, I took my son shortly after he came out just to get information, see what the center was like, what the possibilities were were, were for him down the road. Um, and this was recommended by his pediatrician when I called their office. There was no sense of urgency, um, and it was you know, left really open-ended, like, maybe we'll hear from you in a few years and maybe we won't. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, um, there were no, like, next steps. No, um, you know, down this hallway is where you go to, you know, you're here, this is where you go now. Um, and I left feeling really grateful for the opportunity to sit with professionals and get information and um, just to be able to have conversations with my son approaching puberty. Can I, I just want to comment on this notion that I think we've all heard so many times that being transgender is something that is forced upon a child or that it's an agenda that we as parents have because I find it so incredibly painful. It's painful for so many reasons, but partially because it builds on this narrative that to be transgender is a choice that people make as part of some kind of manipulation. Someone chooses to be transgender because they think they'll do better in sports. Someone chooses to be transgender because they get more attention. Whatever these ideas are, it's so insidious because it absolutely undermines this identity, but it also seeks to try to explain something that I think for a lot of people, they don't understand. And so it is the most painful thing for me as a mom that somebody would rather think that we are part of some kind of conspiracy rather than understand that we are just committed to our children living the best lives that they could possibly live, which I hope is the goal of every parent. We need to take a quick break. When we return, we'll continue listening back to my March 2023 interview with three parents of trans children. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. Before the break, the parents were discussing what it's like for families to support their children's choices made over the years to live as boys. Let's talk about the Missouri legislature. For about three years running, 
the legislature has proposed bills that would ban your families from making a lot of choices you have made around your kids' transitions. And again, what has happened so far is the social transitions for them. What is it like to follow that kind of news with such personal stakes? And you know, how do you, how do you manage that news as the parents of your trans kids? It's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do as a parent, quite simply. I don't have the words to describe what it is to feel so completely powerless, to know that it is your government that is trying to undermine your ability to just live your life and to support your very own child. We've made the decision to bring our son to Jefferson City. He's been an active part of testifying against these bills since um, I think 2019 was the first year that we brought him to Jefferson City. And so he's keenly aware of, of all that's involved with that. And it's hard. I think he also feels really empowered because he's learned how to find his voice and become an advocate. So many other legislators really surround him with love and support. But as a parent, the number of days that I have driven that two-hour drive back after waking up at 4 a.m. and driving two hours to get them for an to get there for an 8 a.m. hearing that we may or may not have a turn, and trying to then get into people's offices just to have them hear us for two minutes. I get back home and I have two other children and we'll come home and my kids will say, can I show you what I did at school today? Can I tell you about what happened at recess? And I have nothing left to offer them. Like, it takes every ounce of energy to just drive that last 10 minutes. I'll tell myself, just get home, just get home. And, and that's what I find to be sometimes the most painful is what it has taken away from me in supporting my family and my kids all the time that I'm not watching a TV show or playing a game because all I can do is just melt on the couch from sheer exhaustion. And Daniel and Hannah, for you, both of you too are parents of more than one child. I mean, what kind of, um, you know, what kinds of resources does it take to be a parent to your trans child and their siblings and like to hold it together? I'm exhausted. Um, and I'm not exhausted from having a trans kid because that has been a blessing and truthfully relatively easy. I'm exhausted from this sense that my government is at war with my family. And right, it's what Rory said. We drive over and over and over again to beg them to just leave us alone. I started having panic attacks at night before I go to Jeff City, and it just becomes so all-consuming. Uh, you know, I, I'm i a fifth-generation Missourian. My kids are the fourth generation to live in our home that my grandpa built, that I grew up in, that my dad grew up in. And we are up at night having conversations about what is the red line and when do we flee and where is far enough and will Illinois be safe enough if these people once again take over control of our federal government and it's, it's terrifying and it feels like a rabbit hole except it keeps coming true. 
Is there a point for you, Rory, and your family where you've talked about that, leaving Missouri? We've absolutely had that conversation. Our number one priority, and I think our number one responsibility, is to our children and to keep our children safe. And it's so wild for me to wrap my head around because we really have this great life in St. Louis, except for the fact that the state government is making life unsafe for our family. And there's no way that we are going to risk our child if we think that life is untenable for him. What does the state of Missouri have to lose if they lose your children? Our kids are honestly the coolest three kids that I know. <laughs> I think you should give them their own talk show after, uh, <laughs> after that interview. You're talking about what's a, when you meet a child who is trans or a child who's non-binary, you're meeting somebody who has more self-awareness than most adults that I get to meet. And what I find comes through, and I see it in our children, and I see it in so many other children that I encounter, is an empathy, a kindness, an openness, a curiosity, a creativity. And that can translate into endless possibilities. Yeah, I know my son mentioned in the interview um, that he feels like he's been an inspiration to some of his peers at school in finding themselves and uh, maybe sharing that information with family or friends. Um, and, you know, like Rory said, that can lead to that leadership quality can lead to a lot of things as he grows up. Um, and Missouri does stand to lose a lot of, um, yeah, really self-empowered, self-aware youth. It's not just that Missouri would leave, lose our kids, but it's that my kid would lose his home and that we would lose our home and our community and being their family. And look, our government is trying to make being trans so difficult it's impossible to be trans in public. That's what all of these laws add up to when you look at their totality. And we're talking about children and families fleeing their home because our state government is telling them that they're not welcome here. You know, be, being trans isn't an ethnicity but at some point the conversation is not, is this ethnic cleansing, but where in the process of ethnic cleansing are we? And it's so unreal, it's so surreal that this is our life and this is our state and this is our home, and yet it is. Last question here. What gives you hope or fuels you in moments like this? We spend a lot of time talking about the voices of hate that we encounter, and part of that is because those are very powerful voices in our state and across our country right now. But the voices of love and support are actually so much more expansive. 
And that's what keeps carrying me forward. I have just felt our family surrounded with love. I mentioned earlier, I hate going to the Capitol most days because it's been so hard and painful. But my son loves it because when he goes, he's a hero to some of the people there. They celebrate him. They pull him into their office. They give him snacks. There are way more voices of love and affirmation. And I know that those voices are going to win out. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I know that those voices are going to win. This episode was produced by Danny Wissentowski. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dore. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.